0: You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Thank you so much for having me this morning. It's so exciting to be kicking off this new series right at the beginning of 2016. What an absolute privilege it is. Um, If you've got a Bible with you or you've got an app on your phone, then if you could find Psalm 8, that would be wonderful. Psalms is the largest book in the entire Bible. So if you open it right in the middle, then the chances are that you'll be in Psalms. The second longest book in the Bible is Isaiah. That has got 66 chapters. Psalms has got 150. So it's the longest by quite a way. And it stands out as being different for a couple of different reasons. For a start, you don't read it from start to finish. Every single other book in the Bible, and you start from verse 1 of chapter 1, and then you kind of go all the way through until you get to the final verse in the final chapter. But Psalms isn't like that. Psalms is a collection of 150 different songs and poems and verses. And so you can just go in and pick one psalm out and read it, and it can stand on its own. It's intended to. It's got a whole bunch of different authors, which, again, is quite different from other books in the Bible. But the majority of them, well, 50 of them, were written by king david so this is david the shepherd boy who with his slingshot killed goliath and as a result of that ended up being in the king's court as the royal harpist and it's quite interesting i was having a conversation with somebody last week who is friends with the great britain's royal harpist who played the harp at william and kate's wedding how interesting is that? So David had this exact same role. He had all sorts of adventures where King Saul at the time absolutely hated him, and he ended up getting kicked out into exile and then eventually coming back and becoming king. So a, a wonderful life story, and he wrote uh, these songs throughout his life, and a whole bunch of them are recorded in the Book of Psalms. Martin Luther was a German theologian. Uh, and a reformer a few hundred years ago, and he said the book of Psalms could well be called a little Bible since it contains, set out in the briefest and most beautiful form, all that is to be found in the whole Bible. So in this four-week series, we're not going to be looking at every single chapter in the book of Psalms because there are 150 of them, but we're going to be picking out four key attributes that God has and then our response to them. And this morning, I am looking at the Creator who is worthy of praise. And so, if we've got Psalm 8 in front of us, I think this captures that idea pretty well. And so, I shall read it. This one was actually written by King David himself. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. The big idea out of this psalm is that God is the creator. If you were uh, a Jew living at the time that this was written in ancient Hebrew, then the chances are that you would have memorized Genesis chapters 1 and 2, the first two chapters in the Bible. And this psalm, essentially plays that whole story out again, but in verse form. So this whole idea about man being given dominion over the animals, even the order that they're named is reflected straight out of Genesis 2. It's exactly the same way that Adam was presented with the animals and named them until he came to Eve, his wife. And the the idea that's set out here is repeated throughout the whole of the Bible. So in another psalm, Psalm 19, in the opening verse to that, then we've got the heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So these opening verses of Psalm 8 where it says, how majestic is your name in all the earth, saying that as we look anywhere in creation around us, at the, the grass in the field or mountains or trees, animals, insects, then we see God's majesty revealed to us. You've set your glory above the heavens. So as we look out into the sky, as far as we can possibly see, and you know, we know that as we look out into the The heavens, as we look at the stars, we can't possibly see the ends of the universe yet. We haven't yet developed that technology. God's glory reaches even further than that, further than we can possibly see with our greatest technology. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength. This word for strength can also be translated into English as praise. Praise. That out of these tiniest of creatures, the weakest of the weak, those who are downtrodden, those who have got no power at all, are completely insignificant. Actually, God works in the tiny as well as in the absolutely enormous. Romans chapter 1 and verse 20 is a, a a letter written by the apostle Paul to the churches in Rome. And he said his invisible attributes... Namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. The big idea here is that God is creator. Now, this morning I am not, although I would quite like to at some point, I'm not getting into a debate over the scientific theories of evolution and intelligent design. There are people who are far more informed than I am, who believe in both the theory of evolution and believe in the theory of intelligent design. They're both valid theories built on almost exactly the same evidence. And if you believe one or other of them, that's fine for you. But God is the ultimate creator. And so whatever means he used to get there, no man has come up with the right answer to it, perhaps, but God is creator. And you've got to understand that because that's about the beginnings if you are a complete atheist scientist trying to come up with a theory about the beginning of the universe and everything, then you come up with the Big Bang Theory. Now, the Big Bang Theory has this theory, that there was absolutely nothing. There was no time. There was no space. There was no matter, no nothing. It's not a vacuum, because there's no space for there to be a vacuum. There's, no, there's nothing. And two particles collided and created the whole universe. You want to believe that? You've got more faith than I do. God, as creator, exists outside of space and time, and so it's perfectly valid to understand that he was able to do that. Do you understand? So if you're an atheist and you've got a scientific theory that excludes God from it, then I applaud your complete blind leap of faith into the unknown, because there's no evidence for it. Also, the creation of life. If you were an atheist scientist coming up with a theory about the, the instant that life was created, then the theory goes like this. The world was completely barren there were rocks uh, covering the entire Earth, but there was a a storm going on for millions of years. So it rained on these rocks, and there was thunder and lightning, and the combination of the different elements with the rocks and the rain and the energy coming from this lightning caused life to come into being. Now, again, there's no evidence that this actually happened. They've tried to recreate it in labs, and they've never been able to recreate it, other than when they uh, add something else into it. So they somehow kind of break the laws of science in order to create life in it so if there is an outside force an intelligent being actually kind of giving that initial spark of life then I'm perfectly happy to accept that and that's what the bible has been saying for thousands of years but to, to even to believe that life can happen out of a rock in a thunderstorm I mean you need complete blind faith and I applaud atheists blind faith in believing that that's where life has come from. But I haven't got that faith. I believe in my God who I've met. Aristotle was an ancient Greek philosopher. He is called the father of logic. And he's also called the father of natural sciences. This guy is the guy to be respected. He was not a Christian, but he was incredibly wise. And he said this, Should a man live underground and there converse with the works of art and mechanism, and should afterwards be brought up into the open day and see the several glories of the heaven and earth, he would immediately pronounce them the works of such a being as we define God to be. This is Aristotle. This is not some crazed Christian lunatic from the States. This is a a genuinely respected father of logic. Everything that we understand about reason today is founded from this guy and Plato who taught him. He's a respected guy. Cicero was an ancient Roman politician and philosopher and author. And he said, when we behold the heavens, when we contemplate the celestial bodies, can we fail of conviction? Must we not acknowledge that there is a divinity, a perfect being, a ruling intelligence which governs? Again, this guy's not some Christian Christian. He's come to this conclusion rationally, having looked at the evidence. This is the only possible solution. It's the only one that makes sense. Now, I live over in Hanwell, in that direction. I don't know, a mile, a couple of miles. I don't know how far it is. But anyway, in the entrance hall to our house is an art gallery at the moment. An art gallery formed of only one artist, my three-year-old son, Ollie. Now, the pictures that are up there, you might not be that impressed by, but one day... I am going to take Ollie to the National Gallery, and I'm going to show him the works of art that are on display there. Now, as we walk around the National Gallery and we look at one, and Ollie will be an intelligent young man by that point, obviously, you know, six or seven, and he'll go, oh, Father, looking at the detail and complexity in this image uh, brings out great emotion in me. The ones that are going to catch his attention more than any other are the ones that are going to be the most lifelike, so have demonstrated the most skill, have got the greatest amount of detail in them, and so, you know, it's, it's got the skill of the artist captured there, are the most creative and, and beautiful to look at. Perhaps they're the biggest, the ones that, you know, that, that they sit there and they're obviously the ones that when you walk into a room you notice, ah, oh, I'm looking at that one first. The skill of the artist and the, the way they're able to demonstrate it in their creation is the one that is going to draw the attention most and is the one that deservedly is going to lead Ollie and me to praise the the creator of that work of art. A creator's glory is dependent on his or her creation. Does that make sense? So somebody who tries to paint and has no way of painting shouldn't be praised as a good painter because they're not. But we look at verse 3 in this psalm. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place... What is man? When you look at creation, it is awesome. It is so much better than anything that you or I could ever create. There's, just, there's no way. It is bigger than anything that we could ever, ever even imagine creating. We can't even understand it. I was going to bring some balls this morning to demonstrate how big this stuff is. But basically, the, the earth, if you imagine that the earth is kind of the size of a basketball, that big, The moon, which we can see, the moon would be the size of a tennis ball in comparison. So, quite small. That's smaller than I would have thought the moon would have been. What do you think the distance would be between the Earth and the moon? You know, the moon orbits the Earth. The distance from Earth to Moon. The Twice the whole. Okay, it's not quite that long. <laughs> <laughs> you get somebody who estimates something ridiculous. No, no. Like, so, the difference is seven meters. Which is... Like, it's quite long still, isn't it? I mean, I'm really bad with measurements. <laughs> How long is seven meters? About the length of the stage? So the moon, is the tennis ball around a basketball. That's the size of the orbit of this tennis ball. I mean, that is pretty big, right? The distance from the Earth to the sun is... Let me tell you the way I'm working it out, and then you can tell me if I'm right or not. So it, ta- it takes... Light, one second to travel from the moon to the earth. So we see everything a second delayed. From the earth to the sun, it takes eight minutes. So that's 480,000 times that distance. So if the earth is the size of a basketball, is that right? 480,000? So if I'm here, size of a basketball, it's, that, it's 480,000 stages away to the sun. That's our closest star. So the next closest star, Proxima Centauri, I think, it's, it's 93 million miles from us to the Sun. It's 3.9 million million miles to the nearest, to the next nearest star. So the distance there, they stop measuring it in uh, miles, and they start measuring it in the number of years that it takes for light to travel. Light is fast, right? For light to take a year to get somewhere, it's a long way away. And it takes light nearly five years to travel. It takes light nearly five years to travel to the next nearest star. Space is huge! I mean, it's so much bigger than we can possibly imagine. And in that, then we are living on this invisible dot, And we have this such a great sense of our own majesty and glory. And we're this invisible dot on an invisible dot, just circling around this tiny little star. And we've we've got this kind of idea of, oh, well, I'm so important. I've got my ambition in life. I've got to hit my goals. Dr. Thomas Chalmers was a 19th century Scottish professor and minister. He was a professor at the University of Edinburgh. He wrote six books works that he called his astronomical discourses, and he said this, We gave you but a feeble image of our comparative insignificance when we said that the glories of an extended forest would suffer no more from the fall of a single leaf than the glories of this extended universe would suffer though the globe we tread upon and all that it inherits should dissolve. Somebody else compared it to a single grain of sand being lost off a beach that's the difference it would make to the universe if this entire Earth disappeared overnight. No difference. Major Tim Peake, the first British astronaut who is currently living on the International Space Station, he was interviewed after he'd been in space for a a couple of days. He's Now he's still up there somewhere. He said, we always talk about seeing the view of planet Earth and how beautiful it is, and so you come to expect that. What people don't mention that much is just when you look in the opposite direction and you see how dark space is. It is just the blackest black, and you realize just how small the Earth is in that blackness. That was a real surprise to me. This guy is physically experiencing the absolute pinnacle of human progress, right? He's literally he's living in a space not on this planet. If anyone should be aware of the glory of humanity, it is him. He's physically out there. He can see the earth from space. And he's saying, now that I've achieved this great pinnacle, I realize that earth is smaller than I ever thought that it was. It's actually completely insignificant, isn't it? How interesting. So creation is intricately complex. We look at the way that science works together and, you know, it's just we could never have come up with it ourselves, which demonstrates that God's intellect is very great. I think that's a good logical, thanks, Aristotle, conclusion to draw from that. But it's also hu- absolutely huge, which means that God's power is very great as well. Charles Spurgeon was a, a preacher in London, um, what years have we got there? Yeah, 19th century. I love the 19th century. Man, they're just written so poetically. Um, he wrote a, a massive commentary on the, book of, the whole book of Psalms. This is volume one, which is Psalms 1 to 26. He wrote a lot. And on this psalm, Psalm 8, or as he writes it, Psalm the 8th, which I like, he wrote a little poem that he had written when he went on holiday to the Alps. Yon Alps that lift their heads above the clouds and hold familiar converse with the stars are dust, at which the balance trembleth not compared with his divine immensity. The snow-crowned summits fail to set him forth who dwelleth in eternity and bears alone the name of high and lofty one. Depths unfathomed are too shallow to express the wisdom and the knowledge of the Lord. The mirror of the creatures has no space to bear the image of the infinite. Tis true, the Lord hath fairly writ his name and set his seal upon creation's brow. But as the skilful potter much excels the vessel which he fashions on the wheel, even so. But in proportion greater far, Jehovah's self transcends his noblest works. Earth's ponderous wheels would break. Her axles snap if freighted with the load of deity. Space is too narrow for the eternal's rest and time too short a footstool for his throne. Even avalanche and thunder lack a voice to utter the full volume of his praise. How then can I declare him? Where are words with which my glowing tongue may speak his name? Silent I bow, and humbly I adore. There is only one appropriate response when we recognize that God is creator and we see how awesome his creation is, and that is we must respond in praising him. He's clearly worth it. That's, that's the only logical response. We praise Leonardo da Vinci for painting the Mona Lisa. And when somebody suggests that there was an original Lisa behind it, then very quickly people come and say, oh, no, 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 it can't be because, because the Mona Lisa. And Leonardo da Vinci is great, and we're happy to praise him. We're happy to praise Wayne Rooney for being a great footballer and scoring plenty of goals for England. But society seems hesitant to bring praise to God as creator. Now, bear in mind that the author of this psalm was King David. And I don't know if you spotted, but there's quite kingly royal language used in it. In this opening verse, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Majestic. That's a royal word, right? We say, you know, your majesty. That's it's what it means. This is a king writing this. He didn't re- write it like that by accident. You know what poets are like. They spend ages thinking about every word. He wrote it on purpose. If he's king and he's saying that God is majestic everywhere, then that means that God is king. God is in control of his creation. He rules over creation. He governs creation. He's the king. That means that if we are part of his creation, then we are subjects in his kingdom. And that means it's more than just our appropriate response to praise him. It is our duty as his subjects to respect and honor him as our king, even if you don't believe in him. Think about it like this. This is going to be a trivial example, but it'll make sense. We just had our third child and when they give you a kid, then they give you this little booklet that explains about child benefit and child benefit tax. So the whole idea is that anybody can sign up and get child benefit. If you've got a kid then you can get some money off the government. But if you earn more than a certain amount, then you end up getting taxed on your child benefit until eventually if you're earning more than 60000 a year the tax ends up equaling the benefit. So if you earn more than sixty grand, it says just don't apply in the first place. Now, just imagine for a moment that you were somebody who earns more than 60 grand, but you didn't think it was very fair that you had this child benefit taken away from you. You think, well, I deserve that, that's that's mine. And one day, you get in your car, and you earn 60 grand, so it's gonna be a nice car, and you decide, I'm gonna drive around the M25 at 150 miles an hour. And pretty quickly, the police catch up with you, because they've got faster cars, and they pull you over And the guy comes up to you and says, I'm going to have to confiscate your car and your license. You're not allowed to travel that fast. Nobody would ever think that it is an appropriate response at that point for you to say, but it's not fair that I haven't got my child benefit, and therefore I choose not to be governed by this king or by this government. That doesn't work. No, no. You live in the UK, and therefore you obey the law. And if you don't obey the law, then you've got the... It doesn't matter whether you like it or if you think it's fair or if you don't think it's fair or you think it's unkind. If It doesn't matter what's happened to you. you. You're still living here and as a subject in this nation, then it's your responsibility to obey the law and you still have to abide by it. Now, when we apply that to our own lives in creation, that's very difficult because we live in creation and some of us have got very tough circumstances which we might think that God has let happen to us, and it's not fair. We might think, even, God, you're being unkind. But the unfortunate truth is that we don't have the option to say, and therefore I choose not to be your subject. No, no, you live here, this is it. You're under his law. It's still our duty to praise him, even when circumstances are hideously tough. Now, that can mean that we end up concluding that God is a distant and demanding despot who has created creation, set it all going, and then just leaves us to it and says, no, if it's going wrong for you, then too bad, but you've still got to bow your knee. But this psalm doesn't allow us to draw that conclusion. In verse 3, it continues. It says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the Son of Man, that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. And this word, the heavenly beings, that's one word in ancient Hebrew, and it, 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 it's just kind of one word. It's difficult to translate, but it means beings that are heavenly. It could be translate, It could mean angels because they're heavenly beings. It could mean God himself because he is a heavenly being. And I think that actually in the context that probably makes more sense that we're under God because elsewhere in Scripture then it explains that angels are ministers to, the, to God's elect. He's given us wonderful glory. He's crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. So over all of creation, even though man is this insignificant, tiny spot in the middle of nowhere which has got no bearing on the rest of creation at all, God has taken that us and elevated us over the whole of creation and given us dominion over it. This is an idea which is repeated throughout the whole of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27, this is the opening chapter of the Bible. It's clear from it that God has created man in his image. That everything else has just been created as part of his creation, but then man comes along. God says, no, no, I'm creating man in my image. You're going to reflect me. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31, God concludes that creation was very good after the creation of man. At the end of every other day, God looked at it and went, that's good. And then man comes along in his image and God concludes, it is very good. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, God breathes life into man. How intimate does this become God does not simply stick man in there as another creature in his creation now man is special because we carry the breath of God but we see it practically in Galatians chapter 4 verses 4 to 5 we see when the fullness of time had come God sent forth his son born of woman born under the law to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. You see, we are subjects in the King's kingdom, and it's our duty to praise Him. I say so we are. Do you notice the, the tense? They were under the law. When we put our faith in Jesus, we move from being under the law to being under God's grace and to becoming adopted into His family and we're no longer just subjects in his kingdom. We're children sitting at his royal table and partaking in his feast and enjoying creation as as his gift to his children. And this psalm very specifically is picked out by the author of the letter to the Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, we read this. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Do you see the reflection of what's happening in the psalm? Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom because he's the creator, all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and and those who are sanctified all have one source, that's God, creator. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. That word in ancient Greek can be also translated as brothers and sisters. Adelphoi. Jesus Christ came to earth, was born in a stable. It's just been Christmas. We remember that, right? And he lived a perfect life. Didn't rebel against God when actually you and I have rebelled against God. He died on the cross in our place. And he rose again to new life. And he's now ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And by faith, we are united with Christ, that in his death, we have also died to law and sin and death. And in his resurrection, we are born into new life, adopted as sons and daughters in his family, and we're called brothers and sisters of Jesus himself. This means that we don't just praise God because it is logically appropriate to do so, although it is. And we don't just praise God out of duty as subjects in his kingdom, even though that's right as well. We praise him out of joy and gratitude for everything he's done for us and all that he is for us. And so I want to encourage us to respond this morning. We're all going to respond together in a moment by singing a song together. But there are some particular people I'd just like to speak to this morning who I believe are here and who I think you should particularly respond. The first group is this. You are people who have never acknowledged God as the creator, as your savior, and as your father. If you're here this morning and you've never acknowledged God as your creator or savior or father, I am giving you an invitation this morning to respond to him today and be adopted into his kingdom by his grace today. If there's anything that I've said or anything that was sung before or any of those prophetic words that were brought by that group of people before, then I'm speaking directly to you that you're sitting here this morning, maybe you've been invited by somebody and you're sitting next to them and as you're hearing the words of my voice, you're thinking, oh, that's me, that's me. But you're unwilling to make that step Maybe you feel ashamed. God welcomes you into his family, not because of anything that you've done. That's completely irrelevant. It's all about what he's done and who he is. And he welcomes us in regardless. If that's you this morning and you feel like this morning is the time, you do want to respond. You want to enter God's family. You've got this opportunity I would really love it if you would stick your hand in the air just so that I know who you are and we can have a conversation after. Thank you. There are two more groups of people I'd like to speak to this morning. The first are people who feel like in life they've been caught up in their own ambition. You've been caught up in achieving things and you've almost kind of come this morning feeling a little bit big and important. And that when we were talking about how insignificant we are, that that's spoken to you of something about pride being replaced by humility. God can supernaturally bring that humility this morning. And I would love for you to respond. I'm not going to ask for a hand in the air for this one, but just kind of take it in your mind that you are part of this group, that you want to say, actually, yeah, God, I recognize that I'm insignificant in my own strength, but in you, I am significant because I'm created in the image of God and I'm a son or a daughter in your family. And the final group of people are people who've maybe been Christian for a long time. Um, It might have only been a short time, but you feel that you praise God as king and that you're really good at that duty stuff. But when it comes to thinking, oh, you know, God deserves the best and you think, man, I've been to church every single week. I've read my Bible every single morning. I've gone to every prayer meeting. I already signed up for the meetups before this morning because I'm so keen and holy. And God wants to say, I'm more than king. I'm your father and I'm your brother. And maybe there's just something there that you want to move from a sense of duty to a sense of joy and gratitude for all that he is and all that he's done. If you are any of those groups, then I'm going to go over to the side right over here and I'm going to be joined by a bunch of people who just love to pray with you. We've got a prayer team specifically for it. If you're any of those people or if there's anything that I said that you think you just want to respond in a different way, then while we sing this song together, if we could just all go over there and we'll pray together. But the rest of us, why don't we stand? I'm going to hand over to Abby and we'll sing a song together in response.